0: Welcome to Jesus Without Religion. I'm Mike Sinar, your host, and I'm glad you're joining us today as we discover Jesus through the filter of grace. If you are a Christian, you are about to see the love of Christ like you've never seen before. Never again will you fear God or feel that you are inadequate or not deeply loved by Him. We know some people call that a license to sin, but as we go through this series, you're actually going to find out that soaking in God's kindness and total forgiveness of all sin, yes, all sin, is the only prescription that will actually lead you away from the disease of sin. Okay, well, it's really good to be back. In today's podcast, we are going to be continuing our study in the Letter to the Hebrews. Uh, We're going to be diving into Hebrews chapter 6. And I always like to say this, if you've missed some of the um, earlier podcasts from chapters 1 through 5, please let me encourage you to go back and listen to those first. There's a lot of groundwork that's being laid from the writer. And if we dive into the middle of this book, we actually, it's very easy to miss the context. I've said it before, uh, this is probably one of the most wildly misunderstood, mistaught letters in all of Scripture. It is used to scare Christians. It's used to put people in fear and bondage. And what we've been unpacking here in the last five chapters is that this letter is not at all written to Christians. This letter is written to Jews. And by and large, it is written to unbelieving Jews. And what we discover uh, in the first 10 chapters, and we've already revealed this uh, in the last five chapters that we've studied, we discover that this is about sin. This is about disobedience, but it's not outward sin. It's not outward disobedience. The writer only addresses one kind of sin in the first 10 chapters of this letter, and it's the sin of unbelief. And it's very important. Why the sin of unbelief? I mean, the point is, these Jewish people, they have heard the gospel, they've tasted the gospel, they've been made partakers but they have rejected the gospel message. And that's the context going on here. And when we reject the gospel of Christ crucified on a cross for our sins, well, folks, there no longer remains a sacrifice. We have walked away from the only true sacrifice for sin, Jesus Christ. So just recapping a couple of verses that we've already read in earlier chapters, you know, we got into Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. He said, take care, brethren, that, that there not be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. So the people who are falling away from God are not people who were once Christians and they started messing up or they're backsliders or all kinds of nonsense that people are teaching. No, they had an evil, unbelieving heart. Where did they fall away to? Well, they didn't fall away from God. I'm sorry, Where they did fall away from God. Where they fell away to was back to the law. When you fall from something, you're falling towards something else. And in the case of the Jewish people, they're saying, I heard about Jesus. No, thank you. I'm going to fall away. I'm going to go back to the temple. I'm going to be looking at the laying of hands uh transmitting sin through scapegoats i'm going back to the blood of animals uh bulls and goats etc cetera, etc cetera. hebrews 3 verse 18 and 19 you said and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest but to those who were disobedient and there's that word disobedient remember this comes up a lot but if we stop there and build this big theology out of it well we miss it because verse 19 tells us what kind of disobedience it was. He says, So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. That was the disobedience that the writer was referring to. And finally, one more we'll say uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3. He says, For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said. So, how do we enter that rest? Is it through trying harder? Is it through begging God to forgive us sin by sin? Is it through human effort? No, it's through believing. Everything else is just an outward reflection of what's on the inside. Now, today in chapter 6, we are going to see a promise from God. We're going to see an oath, a rock-solid one. We're going to see that this promise is its our anchor for our soul. And it cannot be broken, not by anything you say, by anything you do. If you've got your faith in Christ, this anchor is locked in and not going anywhere. Verse one, remember, it comes off the hinges of chapter five. We were last week in our last study. We were talking about solid food and how that is for the mature Christian. Right, and that milk is for the immature Christian. We need to be careful who's teaching. You have people out there teaching a very, very, very—they sound very, very smart. Maybe they've even been to seminar. Many of them have, right, seminary. Um, But these people—they may sound smart. Maybe they think they're book smart. They may be able to tell you a little bit of history, uh, or maybe even a lot of historical um, uh, information about Scripture. But at the end of the day, they miss the gospel and they misteach it, and they need to get back to uh, milk. I said solid food was not doing stuff, right? But it's about understanding good, sound doctrine about Jesus. And we're going to see that here. So here we go into Hebrews chapter six, verse one. Let's just dive in. He says, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching, elementary teaching about the Christ, Let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. You know, the author has been addressing the sin of unbelief, and the readers are Jewish people who are all jacked up on works. They're jacked up on dead works, and maybe they've heard a little dab of Jesus Christ. They've considered it, right? But here are some of those dead works that the author wants to point out to us. So we make sure we know what are these dead works. Is it some lazy Christian? Well, I don't think so. It's I believe uh, we discover that this is uh, Jewish traditional practices as a means of getting right with God through the law. Because verse 2 says, uh, when he refers to these dead works, he says, "...of instruction about washings and laying on of hands." And the resurrection and of the dead and eternal judging. Resurrection. In Acts, the Pharisees they are arguing: is there really a resurrection? Right? Is it what did that really happen? If Jesus was not resurrected, the point is for all of us, you won't be either. Your faith is a joke if Jesus is not resurrected. And we're getting ready now. We're going to see this word about tasting, right? Tasting the good news, which does not mean they were saved. Consistent, again, with the rest of Hebrews that we've read so far, it means they heard the good news, but they didn't eat the meal, meaning they didn't believe it. So remember, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2 says, But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith. In those who heard. I mean, the writer literally just told us what the problem is. So, verse 3, he goes on to say, And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, that have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. There's some keywords in here we've got to be very careful not to overlook. Enlightened, tasted, partakers. You know, they heard this great news just like you have. But the question is, why is it impossible to renew them again to repentance, right? A change of mind. And the answer is, you've heard the gospel. If you reject Jesus, if you reject his sacrifice on the cross, and you grab on to the law or any other source for salvation, what do you think is going to happen to you? To reject Christ is to put him back on the cross. Right? Toughest verses uh, made partakers of the Holy Spirit. So I think this is explained in the next verse as they talk, we talk about shared, shared the powers of the age to come. I, I want you to think about who they are and where they live, which is Jerusalem. Did they hear the apostles teachings? Well, I say they did. Did they see the apostles healings? I believe they did. Some even saw the miracles of Jesus, right? Thus, they have been made partakers like all others that were around in that city. So let's continue. Verse seven, he says, for ground that drinks the rain, Which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. So the first type of ground doesn't just taste the rain, okay? It drinks it in, it soaks it in, and it brings vegetation. This resembles the parable Jesus gave about the seed and the sower in Matthew chapter 13. Some fell on good soil. But remember, there's also another type, right? And that's where, let's get into verse 8. Here it is. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Those verses are commonly cited as proof that you can lose your salvation, and I think they've missed the point. They've missed the context of this letter. So let's continue in verse 9. He says, But beloved, we are convinced of something, of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. So beloved, now, right? <clears throat> these will be Christians. The author is saying to this particular audience, he's saying, even though I'm writing this very harsh stuff concerning you, I'm convinced of better things. That is the beloved people. That's who he's addressing. So then verse 10, he says, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, if having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish. Works don't save us. They don't make us right with God. But when we realize the full assurance of our hope as guaranteed by God, it motivates us to serve in love. Continues, he says, be imitators of those who through faith Impatience inherit the promises. Well, what are we promised? We're promised fullness in Christ. We're promised salvation. These people needed an anchor. And you know what? A lot of Christians need that anchor too. And they're simply not getting it because they don't know the truth. So he continues in verse 13. He says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, and I love, by the way, this is probably one of my most favorite verses in all of Scripture, because it puts the nail on the coffin to all this legalist teaching. He says this, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. Why would God make a promise to God? Who promised to keep the commandments in the Old Testament? And what happened to them when they didn't keep their end of the deal? I mean, you guys know the story, right? In the Old Testament, the Jewish people were given the law by Moses, and they said, we will do everything written in the book of the law. So what we see here is a picture of God having a deal, a covenant with humans. So if you do your part, God will do his part. Well, how did that turn out? <laughs> well, if you, re, if you journey through the entire Old Testament, there's wrath. <laughs> there's God coming back after they repent, and then they mess up again, and then there's wrath. And this is, what it, this is what a covenant looks like when it's a covenant between man and God. When we think we will do everything written in the book of the law, well, guess what? The guys in the Old Testament didn't do it, and we sure as heck aren't doing it either. But I love this because what we're discovering is that there's something very new about this new covenant. God promised Himself so that we have an anchor by two unchangeable things, right? That God doesn't lie. God is God's. When God said this, He made this new covenant. God didn't say, here's the deal. I'll be your God and I'll be faithful and I'll never leave you and forsake you. As long as as you keep the law, that you keep your commandments. God flipped it all around under the new covenant. Do you see it? Instead of a deal between God and man, God promising man and man promising God, God could swear by no one greater. And God said, I swear to myself that I will never leave you or forsake you, that your sins and lawless deeds I will take away as far as the West is from the East, that I will present you as blameless, that when you are faithless, I will remain faithful. God is good. And this new covenant is not about your track record of sins. This This new covenant is about God being perfect for you, Jesus dying for you, Jesus accomplishing what you couldn't do on your best day. And those people out there talking about how awesome they perform and how the law is their standard, uh, boy, they're absolutely missing the gospel. So let's continue. Verse fifteen, he said, and so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. Fear of losing salvation. You know, it always begins with this. What if I lie? What if I drink too much? What if I forget to confess a sin? And do you see who that makes the promise between? Let me encourage you. Write these down, some verses for confidence. Um, read uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Read Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Read Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. And these things should absolutely encourage him. Verse 17, he says, In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise of the unchangeableness of his purpose, he interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Wait a minute, that's one thing. What is what is the Two, what's the second unchangeable thing, right? I only see one here. And that's the point. That's both of them. God can't lie and God can't lie. We, continues, it says, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul and hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. Where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, uh, by the standard of the law, remember we talked about that before, you must, you must be from the tribe of Levi to be a priest. Thus, this disqualifies Jesus from being a priest. And with a change of priesthood, remember what we read? We read with a change of priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. So what is the closing thought here? Some closing thoughts are our religious egos don't like the idea that it's about you or that it's not about you. It's a promise that God made to God. This covenant, um, it's not like the old covenant. So what's your role? Believe. Believe and inherit the free gift. So what do I do when I sin, Mike? What are you saying? It's no big deal. Well, sure, sinning is a big deal. So what do you do? Do you beg and cry for something that you already had? God, please, please forgive me. Well, no, that's not the gospel. Jesus died. He took away your sins. The math is fairly simple. Your sins have been paid for. Your words do not activate the blood of Jesus Christ. Without blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Right? Jesus was forsaken. We read that in Matthew 24, 46. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, why did God forsake Jesus? And I think it goes back to, to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. It's so that so that God would never leave us or forsake us. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Folks, Jesus Christ is your hope. God God can be trusted, and we need to just put our faith in the anchor. Jesus is your anchor. Grab on to it. He's not leaving you. God bless you.